Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins. And prominent educational thought leader, Adriana Duprada. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories. What does it mean to teach science? Why should we teach science? How do we use research to inform that which we do? And how do we infuse everything that we do in a classroom with every part of our being so that we teach who we are? Professor Becky Parker is a remarkable person with such an extraordinary career. She's awarded an MBE for her work in education. She's an honorary fellow of the Institute of Physics. She chairs the Education and Outreach Committee of the Royal Astronomical Society. She's the UK representative on the CERN Teacher Student Forum. She's a visiting professor in the School of Physics and Astronomy at Queen Mary University of London. She's been awarded the Cavalier Education Medal from the Royal Society and she's still a chalky. I'm really excited to talk to her, Adriana. I can't wait, let's go. I'm really excited about this, Phil, and good to see you as well, Phil. How is the, the beautiful city of Sydney faring in spring at the moment? Look, we're jumping a bit backwards and forwards between grey skies and blue skies. It's always muggy, but you know, Adriano, I just want to jump in here at the moment. It's early October when we're recording this in 2020. Do you know today we ticked over 40,000 episode listens? Well, wow, that's, that's absolutely extraordinary that we've been able to manage such a, an interest uh, from, from our global audience. So let's get straight into it. We are so blessed to have Professor Becky Parker with us today. Becky, I'm going to get straight into the very first question. This is a question that we ask every single one of our Game Changer guests. Pretty straightforward. Tell us about your story. How did you get to where you are today? Well, um, that's a, a lovely question. Um, and really, I think quite a lot of it is serendipity. I did physics because I wanted to understand about the universe I'm wearing, especially, I hope you can see, my <laughs> uh, universe dress. Uh, actually, I was wearing it to teach this morning in honour of uh, Roger Penrose, who won the Nobel Prize yesterday for black holes. And I was so lucky because I ended up going to Chicago to do research, which was amazing. But I noticed that I was the only girl that was a long time ago. And I thought, why aren't more girls doing physics? Because it's such a brilliant subject. And I went to various meetings in Chicago and they said, oh, we need to have more professors. I said, no, we don't. We need to have more girls going in at school. So I thought, I'll be a teacher. I'll try and inspire young people because I think they've got the potential to change the world. And that's how I can help infuse them. So I went into teaching and really i've sort of taken opportunities i think all i would say is what i've done uh i've taught um i was head of science at a girls school and we had the biggest number of girls doing a-level physics and then i um had my own daughter which is the biggest joy and then i carried on teaching i went to a school where i sort of had the support to be a bit wild really um i got in touch with a whole group of people who were using robotic telescopes. And there's one uh, in Coonabarabran in Australia. And when I first went to Sydney many years ago, I went and visited um, the telescope there. And um, 
basically this telescope was open to various people and they wanted schools to get going but often teachers were doing the stuff and showing beautiful images of things like you know uh, the Orion Nebula to their students and I said let's let the students take control give them the opportunity and what happened this was in 2005 so it's ages ago a whole load of my students at the school I just started in um, a school which has got girls and boys in the sixth form uh, school in Canterbury um, they sort of took, took over the project and when people say oh how do you do all this research actually the students love it so much they run with it they took over this project and they they basically decided how they were going to run using this robotic telescope there's one in Hawaii one in Australia and these students found new near-earth objects you know those things which come in between the moon and the earth and could pose a threat um well we hope that the u.s navy i think is the main looker outer for the big ones but for small ones which could be tricky my students found new things and this was like i thought well look, if they can do this they can do anything in science and science in a sense has always been you learn the set stuff which mostly white old men discovered many years ago why don't we bring it to life let them contribute and so from then on i've just tried to empower young people to say you can do this and of course we then put a satellite up in space and we've done really cool things and that's what i want science education to be because you know, you wouldn't teach music and say, no, you can't play a piano, or you can't play your bassoon, that's what I play. You can't do any of these things because, you know, you need to just learn the theory. Everybody would say, well, that's crazy. And that's the same with science. You've got to let the people do stuff. And then not only do they understand science, but they actually contribute themselves. And we need that right now, I can tell you. You know, Becky, it's, it's, it's fabulous hearing you talk with such enthusiasm and such passion about what it is that you do. And it, it just ties in brilliantly with the whole theme for this series of, of the Game Changers podcast, which is all about learning in practice. I want to pick up on something you said right at the start of your answer to Adriano's question, which is about girls in science. How do we get more girls taking on physics, chemistry, biology, earth science at the highest levels in schools and then going on to university to study in that area. And I say this as the son of a woman of science. Well, I mean, I sort of end up really banging this drum, but I was really passionate about getting girls into physics. My whole big project when I was trained to be a teacher was exactly that, loads of initiatives, and if you look at the research, there have been loads of initiatives over the last 20 years. And to be honest, there hasn't been that much progress. And I am convinced, but I, you know, I don't mean to be just focused in this approach, but I'm convinced that actually doing research and allowing young people to be scientists, to really open up the world of what science is, you know, actually raises a sort of, you know, everybody floats higher and girls in exactly the same way enjoy science far more. I think everybody enjoys science far more with this approach. But I have found that this approach of allowing young people to genuinely 
contribute to not feel oh it's not for them or you know we must do some special measures for these girls in some ways you know lots of people argue having girl only events that's great but my students my girls never wanted to do that they wanted to just do science because they wanted to do science and at my school when i was in the height of doing all these research projects we had two percent of the country's students going to do physics came from my school so the girls just did it because it was interesting it was exciting it actually challenged them a bit and it allowed them a bit of opportunity for their own agency so it wasn't a specific strategy about you know do a girl friendly event here it was this is really interesting of course i want to be interested why wouldn't i you know the fact that i'm a girl doesn't make a difference and i and i suppose i get a bit of criticism sometimes because i understand that sometimes you need to have you know girls only events but i think in the main if you could improve what everybody experiences the girls will enjoy it more and also the boys will enjoy it more but the girls enjoy it more and carry on that's exactly what i found and if you look so i set up this uh, charity called the institute for research in schools which is running and doing brilliantly um and across schools where they were really getting stuck in with research projects their numbers of girls just went up automatically and especially in physics you know this big project we ran with cern um i've got my hard hat here at the ready just in case you need it um so that project we ran Becky, Becky, we'll get, we'll get on to CERN in just a wee moment. Yeah, I want to tease out a couple of things that you raised there. And, you know, it, it is indeed apt that um, Andrea uh, Gez was a joint winner of the Nobel Prize in Physics yesterday. For Adriato just texted me this to me, so I don't want to pretend that I, knew, I was full bottle <laughs> beforehand, but discovering that stars at the centre of our galaxy are hurtling through space around a supermassive black hole. There's something that you're talking about there which is about you learn science by being a scientist. I know if I was in Adriano's classroom, I would learn art or design by being an artist or a designer. I'd hope in my history classroom back in the day when I still worked honourably for a living, that I would have been teaching kids to be historians. One of the key aspects of being a scientist is the research mindset and the particular approach. Can you tell us what you think the research mindset is in science and how you help kids to put that into practice and your colleagues too for that matter yeah so i think the thing is to not want to do everything to find a project which grabs you as a teacher because i think it's half about keeping you in the profession because i think lots of teachers you know, especially science teachers sort of get a bit disillusioned with delivering a standard uh, curriculum I think something which grabs you so I've always I've taken over a thousand students to CERN so I had a lot of dealings with CERN and we happened to find this detector chip which they were talking about and it was really exciting and nobody had used it in schools and then of course once you start doing something quite interesting and the kids sort of pick up like this morning I was teaching I was teaching the wave equation actually but I had to start talking about the, the uh, Nobel Prize and black holes and of course once you start saying 
about black holes and the kids are interested and they saw my dress and all that sort of lava, you can actually say, you know, there are ways to get involved in these research projects. There are many citizen science projects. There are many things which allow young people to genuinely make a contribution. And when they can see that what they are looking at is something, you know, they're looking at images in space and nobody's looked at this before, that sort of takes on a different, you know, it's not just repeating an equation, it's looking at stuff and seeing that what they think about the world might be valuable. And even though they know they've got lots to learn, I'm not saying that they're experts or complete specialists, but, you know, many of our students working on research projects have noticed different things which haven't been noticed by others, which has led to them finding out something quite substantial. And this is what, this is how science is. It's not a set of answers. It's a process of looking at evidence. And that's what you've got to train the students. And especially like in COVID-19, you know, I don't know about in Australia, but in the UK, they're always saying the science, the science, but there isn't the science. Science is a way of looking at results and then coming to conclusions. And then some of your evidence changes. So you may come to different conclusions. And it's about getting into that mechanism of thinking, which is really liberating because it's sort of like, you know, you're making a, uh, an observation of the world and that may be useful to other people. And there's no age limit to that, you know, five-year-olds think about, you know, how do things float and sink and they discover yeah. things about the world, engaging them to be confident. I think it's half confidence that they've got something to offer. So often kids think they can't do science, it's really hard, it's beyond them. But actually science is about how they interact and how they observe and how they look at data and that's possible to encourage and support people to have confidence in that whatever age and level i'm going to get to a question around soon and, and getting you to just kind of unpack that a little bit for us in a moment but i'm just sitting here listening to you uh, and the passion you have around the importance of real world research projects within schools and 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 how we can continue to tap into the natural curiosity that our young people have about the world around them, the world within them, and how we can keep exploring that. So my, my obvious question is this then, Becky, in relation to that. Why don't we put students in schools alongside scientists to do authentic research? What's the barrier here? What's the real stumbling block? Because it's not just unique to England, it's across the entire world. Why, why aren't science departments within schools courageous enough to say, yes, we need to teach a set of series of standards from our curriculums that are prescribed to us. We get it. But why just don't we do it? It makes too much sense. Because I know, can I know as a visual arts person, we have artists in residence all the time. As, as, a, as a design teacher, we are constantly working with architects, graphic designers, product designers, industrial designers, having them come in and facilitate the design thinking and the projects with the students. So either they take on the real project or they take on a fictitious one in a, in a similar kind of vein. Why aren't we doing more of it? Uh, well, that is a question which keeps me up at night often, I tell you. And, you know, I ever since I gave that um, TEDx talk and actually since for the last 15 years, I've been battling this. And I think, you know, if you look at in the UK, 
they just pack and pack and pack more content into exams and people say, oh, we haven't got time. And uh, that's really sad because especially when exams are cancelled, you know, you sort of, you know, the kids felt really gutted and I could understand that. But actually it really showed what was the point of that because you're not even going to take the exams. The mm. whole point of being able to tick box, tick box, all this, actually you're missing this opportunity for a proper education where you really could allow them to do this sort of thing. And then I think a lot of teachers don't have the confidence, whereas actually what I would say is just, as I sort of highlighted before, just pick something which you're passionate about and then the kids run with it. I used to run loads of different research projects, but the kids ran them all because they were so passionate. And I was just like, a, you know, a bit like Sagata Meacher says, I was like the... I could be a grandmother, but I'm not grandmother. But, you know, I was like the <laughs> grandmother on the side, encouraging them and supporting, and getting contacts and helping. And, of course, I'm prepared to do that for loads of people. I'm trying to do that for a big climate project, which we'll probably talk about later. But, you know, there are people who will help to link you up with universities. But actually, even if you just write to a university department, there are loads of people in universities who realise that this approach is fantastic. So at my current school now, we're working with UCL and uh, loads of different universities and they want to help in a genuine way. They, they realise that actually um, sort of their outreach work, if it's done in a way where actually it's so collaborative that not only do the students benefit, but it might be that the university benefits. It's a partnership because the students are doing valuable stuff which will help the university. The trouble with that is that's the ideal thing. We're doing a lot of that here at school, but it takes quite a bit of time from the university and the commitment. And so often some of these bright young things are so anxious in their sort of cycle of having to publish papers and go through their sort of treadmill. Uh, but I really, and there's enough people, I've spoken at Royal Society conferences and there's so many people who think this would be a better education. And yeah. as far as I can see, we're still short of science teachers and we're short of people going into STEM and the whole world needs people to at least have a proper STEM education especially in the current climate and with the climate crisis. So I just, I don't know. I it just, I, you know, sometimes my husband says uh, to me, don't give up, you know, don't give up, Beth. And I sort of say, well, I'm trying so hard. I don't know how. I turn into government, I pass government, and they sort of say, oh, well, we must have the curriculum and the textbooks. And it just drives you mad, to be honest, because <laughs> they're missing a trick. Science is a brilliant subject. And this is how it should be. And I came to Australia, actually, at Christmas. I came and gave a talk at Sydney. Uh, and I also went to Melbourne, because my daughter was sailing in a big world championship at Melbourne. And um, everybody was lovely. And they all said, yes, you know, everybody say this. Everybody says, yes, this is what we should do. It's just you can't get over the hump of actually saying, stop, change, not go by you know, your GCSE stat. I mean, I said all along in this crisis, cut out half the curriculum and actually have a bit of chance yeah. to do some science. That would be the solution. But it's, you know, it's a bit of a battle actually. 
and I'm not giving up, but it's just, it's just, I don't know why, because to me, it just makes such sense for everybody. Absolutely, absolutely. And you're talking to, to individuals that are, that are already converted. We're over the line. We're, we're with you 100%. And so I want to explore a bit of line of your thinking there as well. This is probably going to set you off once again. And that is, you mentioned exams. What is the role anymore of statewide examinations in the future of for learning communities? Because from my perspective, I'm not seeing a real uh, concrete relevance anymore in, in today's world. Um, but anyway, I don't want to colour your, your opinion. I'm going to hand it over to you. What is your perspective in terms of the future of learning? What's its value? Well, I think in a sense, you know, everybody's all bought a million revision guidebooks and you know, sort of gear themselves up. The tragedy in the UK that the whole of year 11, so when they're 15, 16, when they're probably at their most innovative and free and risk-taking, they mostly spend the whole year cramming for GCSE. And I think that is just such a waste of their talent. I think it does them such a disservice. That's, you know, I, I can prepare anybody for an exam if that's what you want but that's not what we as educators are, should be doing or what is good for the students and if you look at you know if you look at UCAS forms of my students in the past who've gone off what have they valued the most what has been the thing which they've been asked to interview it's their research for if you can say you know I wrote a paper on coronal mass ejections from the sun and then I was the project leader of a team which put a payload up in space and gave their data to NASA, you're going to stand out more than I've got so many nines and A stars and everything. It's meaningless. Actually, let, I mean, we know you've got to learn stuff. So I used to have endless arguments with local head teachers saying, you know, Becky, you put this at the expense of proper learning. I said, how do you think these kids actually do research? They've got to learn their physics. They've got to know how something's in orbit. Otherwise, we're never going to get a payload up in space, are we? It's not as if, oh, yes, I'll just twiddle my thumbs and research. They've actually got to know the stuff far more. So if you're doing proper learning, where you're actually doing real stuff, you actually end up with a far better knowledge. It's a bit like being a teacher. You know, you only really understand it when you teach it. You only understand it when you do it. And so these kids were just, doing you know going becky, through the tick box thing of exams don't get half the benefit from actually becky becky, becky becky can i just can i just ask you to clarify what was that it was it was coronal something oh coronal mass ejection so i had a student publish at 17 a paper on the geometry of you know how the sun is actually shucking out huge great loads of plasma and some of that comes to the to Earth, uh, so solar wind and gives us aurora and stuff. Uh, he used data from uh, an X-ray satellite, the XMM satellite, and he calculated working with somebody from Imperial, uh, who he's now, funnily enough, this is a really good story. So he um, worked with me and published his paper at school. He then went and did a degree in maths. He then did a PhD in astrophysics he's now doing a postdoc with the person he did research with at school so oh, he's that, doing that's very very cool that's very research very cool. professor steve rose at imperial and he did his amazing and, and, and paper 
Becky, Becky, that's a that's a really good example of, of something that which through our research we, we, we would call that character apprenticeship, which is you know a, a novice apprenticing themselves to an expert, and learning everything, and then going off and forming their own adaptive expertise, and then connecting in. And it's brilliant. It, it it is it is clearly the best pedagogy of all. You know, in terms yeah. of in, in terms of creating the competencies that, people that, need. That. That professor has got three of my students doing oh, awesome. either postdoc or postgrad because he can see that these students have, you know, have what it takes because they've done they've done stuff and they've so shown we, that they can think. So if we talk about what it takes, something that I know that Adriano and I, Adriano and I are passionate about, and and Brad Adams, our our, our senior partner in research you know, in educational research and development, would would argue really strongly for this. He would talk about curiosity. And he would say yeah. that you must have curiosity if you're going to keep learning and learning meaningfully in the world. How do we help both students and teachers in schools be more curious or feel free to be curious? I think you just have to create the right environment. So here, for example, we're having this huge push on sustainability and how we're going to tackle the climate crisis and we've done lots of training you know it's not just vaguely it's we've done the big En-ROADS climate simulator from MIT and the students have trained on that and then if you're creating that environment you're saying well, what can you do what steps can you realistically do and then share with other schools and uh, your mates all over the world and one girl said, well, I'm really worried about the fact that I use contact lenses and we don't recycle them. So there's all those millions of bits of plastic going somewhere. And so we said, right, OK, so we, um, Sue Harris, who's a phenomenal colleague here at my school, she got in touch with a local university and we're looking into how that has been done before, what we could contribute. I think that's the key thing, you know, that given the right environment, students will naturally say, well, what about this? And then that's where the teacher is a backup to say, well, you know, I don't know, like one teacher, one student said to me quite a few years ago, I'm not sure about this data from our chips on the International Space Station. They said, mm, well, let's ask the people at NASA. And then they could help and they could see what the student had found. So, I mean, I think I think not being scared of asking, you know, what about that, you know? So I always, I've got this idea, which is a ludicrous idea, because I'm so worried about the climate. I kept thinking, you know, could we wear clothing which, you know, absorbed carbon dioxide? And so I'm always saying, what about this? You know, so, you know, I'm sort of trying to think of things myself. And I think that keeps you going because, you know, you don't want to just feel I've got my lessons sorted for the next, and years because that's quite dull really and like colleagues of mine um all over the country i've worked with you know it keeps them going you know we had a, a fantastic teacher up in sheffield who set up a whole antimicrobial resistance project and also now is doing a, a project on motor neuron disease and you know their passions and then the students sort of run with it and you know, in a sense, you're sort of saying you do have a role. I think that's the key thing. It's sort of giving them the confidence that whatever they say is valid and some things may be more, you know, researchable than others. 
but they've all got parts to play and they can all you know it's not sort of closed off only certain people can think things about science they can all think things about science it's their world and their life and their planet you know they can just free them up to think about what you know strategies i mean we've got an amazing girl here who said you know i don't think um girls in my home area of nigeria uh, are doing enough stem and she set up uh actually it's girls and boys um a stem in africa project and she's got loads of young students in schools getting going being confident and now looking at research projects in stem in stem you know don't close down kids let them roll because they're you know they've got the best ideas they're the ones who are going to come up with these amazing ways forward perhaps you know like in all things lots of them are not going to be great but that's what you know that's how we move forward isn't it but talking about young people uh it's it's clear that you are not only passionate about science and teaching but of course empowering young people to kind of go on their own personal journey of discovery and, and unlock their curiosity. And, and so much of what I'm hearing is your capacity to give them the permission and, and the kind of psychological safety to take those risks and have those, those uh, opportunities. One thing we do uh, at A School for Tomorrow, which uh, both uh, Phil and I are partners in, is that we have this little um, kind of vignette that we, we do every single week where we celebrate a particular young person. So it's, it's called, um, today's student, tomorrow's leader. And one of those young people, his name is Samuel Chung, and, and he, he believes that um, Australia in particular needs to better equip young generations for the future, that he should have learned in school about things like cybersecurity in response to the fintech revolution, about sustainable energy to offset climate change, uh, and how to create genetically modified food to develop with, with overpopulation, just to name a couple of things. Why is it, do you think, that schools and systems are so wedded to primarily teaching the past and not enough teaching of today and tomorrow because clearly young people have an appetite for it? That's a really good question. That's a bit like the one before because, in a sense, it's manageable, isn't it? It's accessible. You can do exams. I remember I talked to the schools minister and I was raving on about research and at the end, he said, and what textbook do you use? And I wanted to hit my head and just cry. Or, or you wanted and... to hit him with the textbook. <laughs> don't answer that, Becky. Don't answer that. <laughs> but textbook in science is out of date as soon as it's published. And, yeah. and exactly. And also, you know, if you think things move so fast, if we don't equip young people with an awareness about their digital you know footprint their their um whole uh, nature of how algorithms affect all their lives about you know all those things about food production and health and living forever and putting you know chips in brains like elon musk did with pigs all those sorts of things we're doing them a disservice exactly and in a sense, that's the whole thing why I think it's manageable to control, you know, if you teach about the past because, you know, you've got it all written down. 
the question is, I think you'd have to really give teachers the confidence that they could keep up with what the current things are. And that's then, but actually if they didn't have to spend so long doing other stuff, if you actually rethought it, then you would have people, you know, I went into teaching because I love physics. I also, you know, want to empower young people, but you know, lots of people say, oh, I can never keep up with what's going on in physics because I'm too busy marking and reports and all that sort of stuff. Well, that's mm -hmm. crazy because you went into education because you're passionate about your subject. And I somehow feel if we could um, sort of rejig that so that there was a way of constantly um, having, I've talked with Nature actually, Nature magazine a bit about this, about how we could do updates for students, which be students and teachers. But also I think we need to have a slightly different view of what a teacher is. I mean, there would be times when we were doing research when, of course, they would say, well, you know, when the data came down actually from our satellite first, the data came down and it was over half term, and we'd all come in and I've got loads of pizzas and we're all sitting around and I was saying, right, okay, this is the moment. It was actually my birthday. And we're going, oh my goodness, we're so excited. And then we couldn't make head, head or tail of it. Completely noise and oh. And they said, well, miss, what's it saying? And I said, I don't know. Nobody knows. We asked NASA, we asked CERN, we had to rethink. And I don't think, you know, this whole thing that teachers should know everything, well, that's rubbish, especially in, in a scientific world. You know, I don't know what the latest thing is on black holes from today or gravitational waves. I try and keep up, but actually that's what an education should be. Okay, so Becky. Then with that. Becky, Becky, I, I want you to imagine right now that you've got in front of you a bunch of recent graduates from university and they're just thinking of going into teaching and some dim-witted professor of education like me turns around and says so becky tell me what is a teacher what does a teacher do how would you answer that question i would say a teacher supports young people to flourish and develop and learn and be excited by the world and a teacher um, is a backup to aid these young people in finding their passions. And everybody's got different passions. And okay, they need some backup stuff, you know, I don't know, some backup stuff they don't need. But, and they don't want to always be looking up on the internet. I mean, they do need to understand a bit of substance about things and understanding say science and English and stuff they need some substance but actually you need to then release what they have and back them up so that that release isn't just you know built on shaky foundations but allow them to then go into an area where they have enough backup but they can then feel Hmm, this is what I'm really interested in. And they may not know what they're really interested in. And partly they can't possibly know because they've seen half of the world. That's what I also think so wrong about education. That actually you can't know what career you're going into in science because everything's changing all the time and things are getting more interdisciplinary. So I really think we need to sort of try and re 
you know, okay, so, I know so, 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 Becky, you've launched into this amazing question, which you've got me. I'm, 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 I'm ditching history. <laughs> I'm over to science teaching now, all right? But there's a, there's a person just over my right shoulder in the third row who bravely sticks their hands up and goes, Do you know, you're a really inspiring person. You're an amazing, wonderful, gifted communicator. You've got all the passion, the energy. I'm just not like that. I can't inspire people. How would you respond to that? I think, you know, I also, I think everybody has to be different. In, of course they are. I don't think, you know, I just happen to be the way I am. But I think there are lots of teachers and lots of students respond to different people in different ways. And I don't think they should try and be like a clone of a teacher. I think they should be themselves. I mean, if you think of, I had some amazing teachers at university in particular. Um, I had one who then went and got the Nobel Prize. Oh, amazing. And he used to be, he used to be very um, scary. And I used to sit in seminars and once I was so sort of, I must have been so concentrating that I actually, when I got up, I collapsed because I think all the blood had gone to my head because I was concentrating so much. And so I think, you know, you learn from, you know, everything. But you will learn from different people. You don't have to be one way. You just have to want, enjoy inspiring young people and, and sort of enabling young people. That's what I think is the key thing about a teacher. You want, they need to enjoy the process of enabling young people to flourish, whatever their enthusiasm or passion is. As long as that's their ultimate aim, surely that's the key thing. And, it, and in that way of enabling people to flourish, they are doing their either teaching lots of different styles and different ways, but with the set, with, in a way that, you know, it's the young person to flourish alongside their well-being. It's not a, a one or t'other, it's part of that whole education. It should be an experience which allows the young person to grow and to feel confident and to feel as though they're sort of, moving forward so i don't i think any teacher you know everybody's going to have their own strengths and they should play to their strengths is what i've always felt in a team you know not all people want to do things some people might have different approaches but with a sort of an, an ethos to take the whole team forward i'm gonna i'm going to wrap up in in a moment becky this conversation as as enlightening as it is we do need to, to kind of put a, a stop to it at some point but before i do that i have one question for you i i am sitting here and i'm thinking to myself i'm encountering a dynamic educator that is is a profound example of self-determination theory of someone who, who who provides the autonomy to the young people in their care and then of course it is, it is wrapped up all, not only in relevance, but the power of relatedness uh, and, and, and this whole character exploration that, that we're experiencing with you today about lifting people up and, and allowing them to discover so much about their, their possibility and of course the world around them. When was the moment in your journey, in your life journey, where you discovered that teaching was going to be your vocation? Oh, I don't know really, I... When I was at school, when I was 13, we had this really dreary set of history lessons, which was so dark. <laughs> and I remember saying to the teacher, I said, 
Now we've learned the Reformation four times. Why not do something a bit different? I wasn't being nasty or hopefully I wasn't being like too cocky. And he was so cross. He said, if you don't like what I'm doing, then you teach it. And so I did actually. So when I was about 13, I gave a lesson on Roman Britain, because that's what I was really interested in, to my class. And I did loads of thinking about how to make it interesting and everything. And everybody loved it. And this history teacher sort of grudgingly said, hmm, you're quite a teacher, I think, and was rather cross. But then I thought, oh, perhaps I could. And then when I was in Chicago and I did quite a lot of teaching younger people there, I thought, oh, I could quite like this because, you know, I can hopefully inspire people. And it's sort of, you know, in, in terms of what you're saying about empowering people, I was at um, quite a, um, a deprived school in my local town. And there were some students there who sort of like said, oh, well, I'd really like to do something proper. I said, look, you can, you can do something amazing. And this one girl, 14, who had such difficult circumstances, she caught the whole school plastic free within about a month. She got all the cuts, she lined them up. This is what you use staff. And then she got all the students. She said, use this number of plastic bottles. She filled and made a huge, great sign of all the plastic bottles in the hall. And she said, look, you are amazing. I got her to speak at one of our research conferences and this sort of changed her life and this this is possible for any student I completely defy anybody to say that you can't make this approach work and I suppose I don't know I've just got more and more determined that actually the future of course is what our young people can do and that is my role to enable them to make a better future. And if I can contribute in some tiny way there, then young people will take this on and hopefully they will then see. Lots of my students at uni and in academia now are saying, we need to do this a bit differently. We need to, you know, once hopefully lots of my students get through and they're in positions of power, they'll say, we need to teach science differently here. We need to encourage people in schools and do all this and work together and be collaborative and allow them a proper voice right from when they're at school right through and value their contributions and hopefully that will change. I just hope so because they need to do it quicker now. That's what I think. You know, so, so much of, of this, this amazing episode is, is around something I've always believed in, Becky, and that is uh, I've always been a teacher because I hope to help young people discover their inherent possibility, whatever that may be. And when we're talking about learning in practice, uh, what we have witnessed in the last 50 minutes or so is, is an educator that not only gives young people voice, because that's the starting point, but gives them enormous agency to be inherently who they are and to launch up from knowing that they're enough and going to this great, amazing place of possibility. I just want to say thank you very much. By the way, it's as simple as, and, and as complex as that, by, uh, you know, to try and figure it all out. But I just want to say thank you very much. The, the, the energy that you exude uh, is, is the type of energy I probably would have benefited from when I was back at high school uh, in a science class. But I also take your point before that uh, what's really important is honoring the truth of the craft and honoring why we are teachers. So irrespective of our personalities, whether we're naturally extroverts or introverts or whatever it is, uh, if, if we honor the mission, the, the desired outcome, 
to help young people to flourish, then we've achieved our goal. And I just want to say thank you very much for teaching us today that learning in practice is, is about this beautiful vocation that we continue to be part of and that teachers are remarkable uh, and, and they give so much life to, to, to our future. Uh, Becky, thank you very much for your time and uh, we wish you well on your endeavours going forward. Oh, thank you so much. It's been an honour and I say I hope to keep in touch and do, do more things and get more people inspired with this sort of approach. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Becky. You're an absolute treasure. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions. It's powered by a schoolfortomorrow.com and circle.education. It's available on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Spotify and on Google. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, subscribe, like, you know what to do. Let's go.